You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Hey, good morning, Crossing family, and to all of you who are watching online. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And today I'm coming to you by way of video because on Monday of this past week, I tested positive for COVID-19. Thankfully, I'm doing well. My family's doing well. Um, My symptoms are fairly mild. I feel kind of like I have a head cold and a chest cold. Um, I've, I've lost my sense of taste and smell, which means I didn't get to taste and enjoy all the good, delicious Thanksgiving food. But uh, nevertheless, we are thankful. I'm grateful to be doing well. I'm so grateful for the many texts and calls checking on us. Grateful for your prayers. And uh, my family realizes we're not the only family in our church affected by COVID right now. So we're just joining with all of you in praying um, and asking Jesus to bring healing into our body and into our city um, and ultimately just to put an end to this virus. So today's going to look and feel a little bit different, but I hope that you're okay with that. And let's just roll with it. Um, all that being said, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Uh, for the past seven weeks, we've been in a series called Ghost Stories, where we've been exploring the personal role of the Holy Spirit and talking about how in order for us to become resilient disciples, we have to be a people who live lives empowered by the Spirit. And we've just been talking each week about what that looks like. And today, we get to finish up that series with a lighthearted teaching about how Jesus has called us to rely upon His Spirit and given us the power to cast out demons. So does that sound fun? I can't hear you. I don't know if you're uh, answering me or not, but I'm going to assume it sounds fun, and that's where we're going. That's what we're going to talk about today. So before we dive into it, let's just pray. Um, I need prayer. You need prayer. We need prayer. So let's just ask for the Father's help and everything that we do here today. So would you join me, and let's pray. Um, Father, I just I, I do just confess that um, that I need you. We need you. We need your presence. And ultimately, I think what we all need is just to be filled with hope. So would you do that this morning? I pray, God, that if there's any kind of demonic interference or influence, that you would, in the name of Jesus, dispel all powers of darkness in this place, in our hearts. I pray that you would cast out all evil spirits and you would fill this place and fill each person afresh with your Holy Spirit. And fill us with a sense of hope. I know this is a little strange and different, so would you just give us the grace to just sit under the teaching of your word right now? Even though it feels a little weird to be doing it the way we're doing it, I just pray that you give us the grace to be present to you and what you're doing in this moment. And all these things I ask in faith, and I ask you to do them for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. I trust that you said it. Amen. 
Um, a few years ago, the Barna Research Group did a massive study where they interviewed thousands of American churchgoers and asked them to share about their spiritual beliefs. And particularly, they asked them to share what they believe about the Holy Spirit and Satan and demons. And they took all their research and all their findings and they published them in this article. And the title of the article tells you everything that you need to know about what they discovered in their research. Here's the title. Quote, most American Christians do not believe that Satan or the Holy Spirit exist. So just let that sit on you for just a moment this morning. Most American Christians do not believe, most do not believe that Satan or the Holy Spirit exist. In the article, they write this. Here's a quote. Most Americans, even those who say they are Christian, have serious doubts about the intrusion of the supernatural into the natural world. Listen to this. Hollywood has made evil accessible and tame, making Satan and demons less worrisome than the Bible suggests they really are. It's hard for achievement-driven, self-reliant, independent people to believe that their lives can be impacted by unseen forces. Now, what this article is getting at is that this thinking has made its way into the church because we are all being shaped and formed by the culture that we live in. We live in a rational culture that says if we can't see it, understand it, and explain it, then it doesn't exist. It can't be real. Here's a quote from one secularist uh, cultural commentator who kind of embodies this disposition. Here's what he says. It's a secular scholar. There is, quote, there is no such thing as the devil or demons, just as there is no such thing as fairies, imps, or goblins. The two largest religions in the world, Christianity and Islam, teach that there is a devil, and they are wrong, he says. There is no evidence for such a thing, not a shred. It is simply something that germinated from the unscientific, irrational minds of early humans who tried their best to explain why bad things happen to good people, why good people sometimes do bad things, and why there is so much needless suffering in the world. Okay, in case you missed it, in case you missed this point, to paraphrase what he's saying is if you believe in the devil, you're stupid. Um, it's okay to make movies about exorcisms and, and demon-possessed people, but only superstitious, primitive, stupid, uneducated people actually believe stuff like that. And this is the culture that's forming and shaping us as disciples. And I think a lot of us would hear that, a lot of us who would call ourselves Christians would hear this, and, and, and we, would, we would say that we believe that Satan and demons are real. Like, we would agree theologically that those things exist, but functionally, we live our lives as though we don't really believe that. Because I don't know about you, but like, I didn't grow up in a church context, and we still kind of don't really function in a church context where we talk about Satan and demons that much. This is kind of stuff that sort of remains buried in the shadows for us like under, like out of our conscious awareness. And so I think, therefore, we live with a severe lack of awareness to the reality of, of satanic and demonic activity all around us. And at the risk of sounding primitive, stupid, and uneducated, this really concerns us as pastors, and here's why. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, Be alert and of sober mind, 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Two things I I, want to point out quickly about this passage to frame up where we're going today. Here's what Peter's getting at. Number one, Peter wants us to see that the devil is absolutely real and he is actively seeking to destroy you. And so Peter calls us to wake up to that reality, like be alert. Uh, One of my favorite movies from the 90s is The Usual Suspects, and in it there's this line from Kevin Spacey's character, Verbal Kent, and he says, quote, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And Peter knows that. That's why he says, be alert, wake up, be sober-minded, don't be deceived. You have a real enemy who wants to destroy you. And the second thing Peter wants us to see is this. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not only called to believe that the devil and demons are real, but you're actually called to join up with Jesus in the fight against them. That's why the Bible describes the Christian life as spiritual warfare. I mean, look at the, look at the language Peter uses in this passage. Um, the, the words resist and stand firm in verse 9 are military battle terms. To resist literally means to fight off or to push against. Um, The word stand firm means you hold your ground and you don't give the enemy any territory or room to advance. So you, you put all that together. Here's the big idea that I want us to wrestle with this morning. In order for us to be a spirit empowered church made up of resilient disciples, we have to be a people who join Jesus in embodying and practicing his ministry of deliverance. That's when the kingdom of God breaks in and people are delivered from the power of Satan and demons. And yes, Jesus actually calls and empowers us to participate in that ministry with him. And so the question is, what does that look like? And I think probably the best place for us to start is with Jesus and his ministry. And let's look at how he did it. So if you're still with me and I'm trusting you are, go with me to Mark chapter 1, and I want you to hang tight because we're going we're gonna to do quite a bit of reading, but this is God's Word and it's good for us. So Mark chapter 1. And just to set up the context, Jesus has just been baptized, and then the very first thing he does to kick off his ministry is he goes into the wilderness to take on the devil himself. And Mark doesn't go into the details of that story, but we see in the other Gospels that Jesus quotes Scripture out loud to the devil, and then he commands the devil, away from me, Satan, and the devil flees Jesus. And so I just think it's, I think it's profound, I think it's significant, and it's something for us to pay attention to, that the very first thing Jesus does to inaugurate his ministry is he goes toe-to-toe with the devil, and he demonstrates his power to drive out the devil. I just want you to notice that. It's the first thing he does. Right after that, right after Jesus drives out the devil, he announces that the kingdom of God is here, and then he calls his first disciples to come follow him and share life with him and do mission with him. And then that's where we pick up the story in verse 21. Mark says this, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus is with his disciples here. Uh, They went into the synagogue and Jesus began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Notice Jesus' authority, not as the teachers of the law. 
Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, that's another word for demon, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Shut up. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And I would imagine so. Now, this is really interesting to me because Jesus has just called his disciples to come be a part of his kingdom ministry. And you might think that the first thing Jesus would model for them is like how to share their faith, you know, how to share the gospel or how to pray for people or how to heal the sick or, um, you know, something along those lines. But instead, the very first thing Jesus does with them is he says, come follow me. And then he takes them to cast out a demon just throws them right into the deep end. Like, if you guys want to know what I'm all about, you really want to follow me, you really want to be a part of my ministry, this is what I came to do. It's the first thing he he does with his disciples, takes them to cast out this demon. And so right away, we begin to notice this pattern in Jesus' ministry. First, he cast out the devil. And then the very first thing he does with his disciples is he takes them to cast out a demon. Skip down to verse 32 of Mark chapter 1. News is already starting to spread about what happened at the synagogue. And then we read this, verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. This is at Peter's house. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Fascinating stuff. Skip down to verse 39. This is the next day. Mark says, So Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus' first day on the job as the Messiah, he cast out the devil, and then he, he delivers every demon-possessed person in Capernaum. And then just to show you that day one is not just like a weird day at the office, Jesus wakes up day two of his ministry, and everywhere he goes, he goes about casting out demons. So what Mark wants us to notice right out of the gates about Jesus' life and ministry is that, you know, you may not believe in the devil and demons, but Jesus does. And from day one, Jesus' ministry was marked by delivering people from demonic oppression. Day one, this is a key facet in his ministry. The late John Wimber, who I'm actually going to quote a lot in this teaching, sums up Jesus' whole ministry like this, quote, Jesus came as a divine invader to destroy demons and release men and women to eternal life, which explains why the Lord's presence caused demons to tremble and fear. Listen to this. Jesus' ministry was marked by continual conflict with Satan and demons for the purpose of establishing God's reign on earth. And what Wimber Wimber is getting at is that it seems like every time Jesus turns around, he's confronting and casting out another demon. I mean, you see this like almost on every page of the Gospels. 
You see it again in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus delivers a man with a legion of demons. Mark 7, Jesus casts a demon out of a little girl. Mark 9, he delivers a boy uh, uh, who has a demon that's causing violent seizures. And then in the last chapter, Mark 16, we read about how Jesus drove seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. And that's all just in Mark's gospel. You see this all over the place in Jesus' ministry, to the degree that another writer Trevin Wax um, says it like this. He sums up Jesus' ministry. He says, When we think of Jesus as presented in the Gospels, we see his earthly ministry in terms of his role as a teacher, as a healer, as a miracle worker. But what about Jesus the exorcist? You can't read any of the Gospels without running again and again into Jesus' confrontations with evil spirits. Yet we rarely think of Jesus as an exorcist. It's as if we've screened out these harrowing encounters from the image we have of our Messiah. And here's the point I'm trying to make. You you can't follow Jesus and adopt his way of life apart from embracing the reality of the demonic. And as a church, we can't even like be about our vision apart from embracing the reality of the demonic. Our vision as a church is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven. If there's one thing we learn from the ministry of Jesus is that if you really want to be about God's kingdom breaking in, you better get ready to do battle with demons. And I'm just taking my cues from Jesus. He's our rabbi. He's the one that we follow. And this is what we see all over his life and all over his kingdom ministry. And so if we want to be a part of that, we better, we better be prepared for that. Now, that being said, because this is not something we talk about very much in the American church, I actually think this gives us a chance to zoom in for a second and talk about the nature of demons. Demons would rather us leave them in the shadows and pretend like they don't exist, but I actually want to take a moment to kind of drag them into the light and just talk about what demons are and what we're dealing with. And so that's what, that's what I want to do for a second. This may feel a little bit academic and a little bit teachy, but hang with me because I actually think this is really important. It's really important stuff. It's in the Bible. It's a crucial part of Jesus' ministry. So let's just go here together for a moment. The first question we have to ask is, what are demons exactly? Okay, so let's clear that up. It may sound bizarre, but the Bible actually teaches that Satan or the devil was created as an angel to serve God. But instead, he rebelled against God, and then he recruited other angels to follow him. And so what the Bible calls demons or evil or impure spirits are actually angels that have sinned and rebelled against God and and joined up with Satan and followed Satan to form a new kingdom. And Paul in Colossians 1 calls that kingdom the domain of darkness. And you can read all about this, by the way, in 2 Peter uh, 2, 4, Jude 6, Revelation 12, 7 through 17, Luke 10, 18, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, Ezekiel 18, 11 through 19. But just so we're clear, that's what demons are. We're talking about fallen angels who have sinned and joined up with, with Satan in his, in his standing in opposition to God's kingdom. And that's their mission. So here, demons have one job. Here's what they exist to do. Their mission is to partner with Satan to oppose God's kingdom through various schemes that are designed to keep men and women from experiencing the abundant life Jesus offers. And when you read the Gospels, one of the primary schemes or strategies that you see demons using against people is something the Bible calls demon possession. 
You see this term all over the Gospels. Again, go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 23, and we read that there's a man in the synagogue who was, quote, possessed by an impure spirit. Verse 32 of Mark 1, we read, The people brought to Jesus all the sick and, quote, demon-possessed. So a lot of people in the Bible are described as having demons, and that usually gets translated that those people are demon-possessed. But that's really not the best way to translate what this word is getting at. Um, the Greek word for having a demon is uh, daimon eats aminoi. Daimon eats aminoi, which is just fun to say. And translated literally, this is the word demonization or to be demonized. And most scholars believe and agree that's actually a better translation. So if someone has a demon, it's better to say that person is being demonized like tormented by a demon, rather than that person is demon-possessed. Because demons can't possess or own anything. Um, the New Testament views them as squatters or invaders, not owners. You, are you guys with me? I can't hear you. I don't know. Can I get an amen? I, I, I hope you're tracking with all this. All that being said, here's a good definition of, of this Greek term that we typically translate demon-possessed. Let's call it demonization. Here's a, good, here's a good definition. Demonization, or to be demonized, simply is to be influenced, afflicted, or tormented in some way by one or more demonic spirits. Sometimes in the New Testament, you see a person influenced by one demon. Sometimes you see a person with multiple demons. And you see different levels of demonic influence. Sometimes the influence that a demon has is minimal over a person. Sometimes it's major and it's all-out life-controlling. For example, on the milder side, a demon may influence your thoughts or get a grip on parts of your personality. Uh, you see this with the guy in the synagogue in Capernaum where a demon causes him to speak out and challenge Jesus. And then in more extreme situations, you see demons causing physical harm to people. Just, this is in the Bible, okay? Um, causing mutinous and blindness and seizures and high fever and even crippling. And in maybe the most extreme cases you see in the New Testament, you see demons causing severe emotional and spiritual bondage. Like we see with the man in Mark chapter 5 who had multiple demons that called themselves legion. We're told that this guy lived in the graveyard Outside the, the town, the people had cast him out to live out in the tombs. And people had, were told, had bound his hands and feet with chains, but he had broken them. And so there's even uh, evidence that uh, a demonized person may have unusual strength. It's crazy stuff. You see this again in Acts 19, by the way, when there's a demon-possessed person, a, a demonized person, that beats up seven full-grown men. It's actually quite hilarious. He, like, strips them. It's not hilarious. But he like these guys run away naked and bleeding, Luke tells us in Acts 19, because one demon, demonized man, has overpowered all seven of them. So there's this unusual strength that this guy uh, displays. And, and we're told, uh, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 5, this guy roams around day and night naked, not wearing any clothes, crying out, and he's cutting himself. And I would argue self-harm like that is a major symptom of demonic activity, especially if it escalates into suicidal ideations. That's the number one way that Satan can destroy you and keep you from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus has for you. So these are just like some of the levels of influence and kind of 
some of the symptoms that you see of demonic influence. Now, having said that, most scholars believe that the symptoms you see in the New Testament are not exhaustive. There are plenty of other ways that demons can, can try to hijack your life and get control in your life. John Wimber, to quote him again, gives a broader list of symptoms that might indicate demonic activity. And these are just things that are based on what you see in the Scripture and the kind of things that you see in pastoral ministry. So, number one, he says, contorted physical reactions, especially when the power of the Holy Spirit is present as in a worship service or prayer meeting. I've seen this before. Number two, addiction to drugs and alcohol can be an indication of demonic control. Three, a problem with compulsions such as eating disorders, and then he lists all kinds of sexual sins. Lust, fornication, pornography, fantasy, stealing, murder, uh, lying, self-harm. Again, think of the man cutting himself in Mark 5, or suicide. Bondage to feelings of shame, worthlessness, rage, anxiety, hopelessness. Bondage to sinful attitudes like self-hatred, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, and contempt. Chronic physical sickness and disability. Again, you see this all over the New Testament. A history of occult involvement definitely can indicate the presence of demonic activity. And then finally, he says, a history of trauma and abuse can open a person up to demonic affliction. Now, as I read this list, if you're anything like me, you see some of these symptoms in your life and, and part of you thinks like, well, I mean, maybe, gosh, maybe I have a demon. Or you're thinking about other people that you know in your life and you're like, hmm, maybe they have a demon. And then there's this other part of you that wakes up and says like, yeah, but maybe like a lot of these symptoms are just explained as the result of psychological problems or just like this, the product of living in a fallen world. And so... Just to shepherd us in how to think about this, John Wimber goes on to say this, and I think this is really good for all of us to hear. After he gives this list, he says, quote, The presence of one or more of these symptoms indicates the possibility, though not the necessity, that the person is demonized. Not all symptoms that look demonic are demonic. A lot of the symptoms um, of demonization in the New Testament are indistinguishable, from symptoms associated with normal illnesses that are the result of living in a fallen world. Then he says this, their cause may be really complex and be a combination of psychological, physical, and or demonic factors. So if you're looking at this list and you have some of these symptoms, it's possible that there's a demonic presence in your life. And then it's also possible that what you're experiencing is just the result of being a human who lives in a broken, fallen world. So in light of all of that, here's the tension that, um, that I want to name for us, and this is the tension that we want to invite us as pastors to live in as a church. On the one hand, we don't want to be excessive about demons, but on the other hand, we absolutely want to be expectant that we will encounter them. That's the tension I want to invite us to live in. On the one hand, we don't want to be excessive about demons, but on the other hand, we want to absolutely be expectant that we will encounter them. So the goal is not to be excessive and like blame demons for every problem that you have. Um, I've literally had a friend in seminary who showed up late for class. We're having an exam that day, shows up late for the exam uh, because his car died. And he tries to explain it to the professor and blame it on demonic activity. Like I, this was Satan. I was being attacked. Turns out he ran out of gas. So. Jesus, I think the point is Jesus doesn't teach us to attribute everything that goes wrong in your life to the presence of a demon. 
That being said, however, Jesus definitely doesn't want us to ignore the fact that Satan and demons are real. And while we shouldn't be excessive about them, we should absolutely expect to encounter them. All, Jesus and all of the New Testament writers see this as a normal part of the Christian life. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. He says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Paul's just saying the same thing I said earlier. If we really want to be about God's kingdom breaking in, we better get ready to do battle with demons. And he's saying if you're a disciple of Jesus, you, you can just expect that you're going to bump up against demonic activity. And so if that's true, I think it begs the question for us, what do, what do you do when you encounter a demonic presence in your life or in someone else's? When, not if, when we come face to face with a demon, what are we supposed to do? And let's talk about that. The answer, according to Jesus, is really clear. If you encounter a demon in your life or in someone else's, you cast it out. That's what Jesus says. So don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. Listen to Matthew chapter 10. We'll go to Matthew chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1. We can put this on the screen. It says this. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority. Some of that authority Jesus had, he gives it to his disciples to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then look what happens. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus commissions these guys to go out and reveal and demonstrate the, the kingdom of God and to, to show us a picture of what the world is supposed to look like and what it will look like when Jesus returns to restore all things. In the kingdom of God, there is no sickness, there is no coronavirus, there is no death, there is no bondage to Satan and demons. And so these guys are out there healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons. And what I love about this is that these are just normal dudes. Um, James and John are fishermen. Matthew works for the IRS. Thomas is full of doubts. Peter is Peter, right? He's always putting his foot in his mouth. Judas betrayed Jesus. The point is that these are ordinary, everyday disciples. And if you're anything like me, I often think, I'm not qualified to do this kind of stuff. Well, these guys weren't either. And yet Jesus empowered them and commissioned them, and they went out and they actually did it. I love that they're so normal that when they came back from their mission of doing this stuff, they're like shocked and, and kind of like almost bragging in and, and, and disbelief that it actually worked. In Luke's account, he says that after they come back from casting out demons, uh, it says this, quote, The disciples returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. It's like, Jesus, it worked. We, we actually cast out demons. It was awesome. 
And I, I love Jesus' kind of chill response. He says, yeah, quote, I told you I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And then Jesus goes on and says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So like, don't get too cocky, young grasshoppers. And I think the point is that the gospel writers want us to see is that these are just normal guys. Like they're kind of even in disbelief that, that like they're doing this stuff. Jesus, the point is Jesus didn't call the spiritual elite. He calls everyday ordinary disciples and empowers them to do extraordinary things. And the bottom line I want us to embrace this morning is that every disciple of Jesus has been given the authority of God over the demonic. I'm going to say that again. Every disciple of Jesus has been given the authority of God over the demonic. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, it is by the power of the spirit that I drive out demons. And what's amazing is if you're a disciple of Jesus, he's given you his same spirit. We have the same spirit Jesus had to do what Jesus did. What would it look like if we actually believed that and we walked in the spirit to exercise the authority God has given us to break demonic strongholds in our city, in our family histories, in our personal lives, in our church, in your missional community? What would it look like if we actually believed this and we walked in the power of the spirit and we exercised this authority to cast out, to push back the darkness? I mean, the good news is that because the kingdom of God is here, nobody has to stay in bondage to Satan and his demons. Because Jesus is alive, and he has given us his Holy Spirit. He has empowered and commissioned his church to go and drive out spiritual darkness and demonstrate the reality of the kingdom of God. And, and because that's true, I think the question we have to land on today, the question we have to end with is, what does this look like on a practical level? Okay, like nuts and bolts on the ground level, you come face to face with a demonic presence. How do you actually practice the ministry of deliverance when you encounter demonic activity? And I don't think there's an actual step-by-step formula on how to cast out a demon. I don't know if anybody's ever attempted to like even teach that in a sermon. But like, here goes, okay? Um, when we look at Jesus' ministry, we do see a basic pattern that Jesus follows. He doesn't follow every step in every instance, but when you put this together, this is a basic pattern that he pretty much follows to a T anytime he's confronted with a demon. And here's the pattern. We'll put it on the screen for you. Number one, discern the footprints of demonic activity. Number two, command that if a demon is present, it gives you its name. Number three, command the demon by name to leave and never return. Number four, minister to the person's need. I'm just going to say a brief word about each of these, draw some implications, and we'll be done. And, and I just want to say this before I, I, I walk through these. What I'm about to share with you um, is, is not, it's not totally theoretical to me. Um, as pastors, we wouldn't call ourselves experts at this. We're, we're like pretty new at this, but you just need to know that we're trying to step into this and we're actually trying to walk in this. And in the last few years, we've, we've, we've participated in the ministry of deliverance and we've seen, we've seen by the power of the Spirit of God demons cast out of people a handful of times in this church. And so you just need to know that we're trying this on. We're seeking to actually walk in the authority that Jesus has given us. And this is how we want to lead you and lead, lead us as a church. So that being said, first thing we see in this pattern 
in Jesus' ministry is you discern the footprints of demonic activity, okay? Jesus never just walks up and assumes that somebody has a demon. That's pretty offensive, okay? He pays attention to the symptoms, and you notice he asks questions. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is talking to a dad about his son who's having violent seizures, and Jesus says, first thing he says is, bring the boy to me. Like, I want to see him. I want to look at him myself. And then Jesus looks at this kid, and then he asks the dad a question. Quote, how long has he been like this? Jesus is just trying. He's like, he's being curious about the situation. And the dad says, from childhood. And then they continue conversing. And, and then Jesus learns. The dad says, oh, also, this might be an important detail. Often, he actually says often, so this has happened more than once, this kid has seizures next to fire and water. So I suspect that maybe the dad says maybe something is trying to kill him. And Jesus in this moment discerns, okay, we're dealing with a demonic presence here. And this is important. I know I've quoted John Wimber a lot already, but, but Wimber cautions us about rushing to misdiagnose someone's emotional or physical pain as demonization. Because if you misdiagnose it as demonization, you can actually do more psychological and spiritual damage to the person. And so as a good rule of thumb, here's what John Wimber says, quote, I never call anything a demon until I've actually talked with it, end quote. So when I'm counseling someone, I'm just like listening to their story. I'm asking lots of questions and then I'm just paying attention to the threads in their story. I'm paying attention to the symptoms, whether it's addiction or it's trauma or it's abuse or it's some sort of like gravitation to some particular kind of sin that they're in bondage to or, or some emotion like shame they're in bondage to or suicidal thoughts. I'm just, I'm just noticing and I'm paying attention and I'm just trying to discern the footprints of demonic activity. And then if I think this person might have a demon, the next thing you see in Jesus's pattern is to command. If there's a demon present, you have to reveal your name. This is a huge step because you, you see Jesus almost always do this because it forces the demon to acknowledge the authority that you have over it in the name of Jesus. And so what we typically do as pastors, if, if we do sense that someone might have a demon, we explain, you know, a lot of times the pain in your life can be caused by just living in a fallen world. Sometimes it's caused by sin in your life that's sort of stored up, unrepentant sin. And sometimes it's called by, caused by demonic activity. And we ask the person, like, do you get a sense, as you hear us say that, of like any one of those that may be the cause or the source of what you're experiencing? And if we all kind of sense that there could be a demonic presence there, we explain to the person, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at you in the eyes, and but we're actually going to command that if, if there's an evil spirit present, it has to reveal its name. And we just want you to listen. And if a name pops in your head, you trust the process, you say it out loud. And so we say, I mean, it sounds kind of weird. I feel, I feel strange even saying this, but this is, the, again, we're just trying to follow the scriptures. We say something along the lines of, hey, if there's an evil spirit in there, I command you in the name of Jesus, tell us your name. You cannot hide. You can't hide. You can't stay in the shadows. Come into the light. Tell us your name. And then we listen and then we wait. And on a few occasions, we've had people speak a name. Uh, had a man come to me one time for counseling. And by the way, they've given us permission to share these stories. Um, came to me for counseling about his anger and his rage and his desire to like harm particular people. And he said that he'd been suffering from this intense migraine for two weeks. And I said, is that normal? He said, no, don't, I don't suffer from migraines. And so 
the more we talked, the more I tried to pay attention to the Spirit and listen, I just sort of discerned we could be dealing with a dark presence here. And so um, I just asked, I said, if there's a demon present, tell us your name. And we listened for a moment, and then he said, this guy said, malice. Which, as you know, is another word for anger and a desire to harm. And oftentimes you'll see that a demon might say something like lust or anger or something like that. And so he says, malice. Um, one night, um, after a prayer gathering, you know, normally we say as elders, we'll stick around and we'd like to pray for you if you have any sort of particular need. And we had a woman come forward with her husband and she had asked the elders to pray for her in my office. And so it's, it's me, Jared, Luke, Chuck, Chuck's wife, Lindy, and this woman's husband who were like, it's, it's, um, you know, several people, all of sound mind. This wasn't a mass hallucination. We all know what we experienced, okay? And so we're all in my office, and she comes in. Her whole body's just locked up with anxiety. That's the first thing we notice. She says that she's been in bondage. To, the more we kind of interview her, she's been in bondage to fear her whole life from childhood. And she has all this pain in her neck and her shoulders and her head, and, and she's shaking. She's just shaking as we begin to pray over her. And, and then we, we begin to sense at some point, like she, she wasn't getting any relief. And we just sense, you know, there could be a demonic, like stronghold in your life, foothold. And so we just commanded, if there's a demon present, reveal your name. Tell us your name. In the name of Jesus, give us your name. And she just began to scream the name Joan. Which, as you hear me say that, you know, that's probably not the name you expect a demon to have. Maybe that's a name you'd expect your great aunt would have. But she says the name Joan over and over. She's just shouting this name. And, and as we begin to interview her about her story later, after the fact, we learned that there was this authority figure in her family named Joan who was this religious fundamentalist who used to shame her and belittle her and, and would like spiritually abuse her and, and tell her that she could never measure up to God's standards. And so we learn that this is the source of her anxiety, her shame, her perfectionism, and the lie that God can never love her. And we absolutely believe there's some kind of generational demonic presence that, that she inherited. And so we've, in both of these cases, like we followed the next step in Jesus' pat pattern and we commanded in the name of Jesus this demon to leave and to never return and, and to enter into no one else in our church or in our city. Jesus always does this. By the way, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't ask that demons would leave. He commands demons to leave. And, he, and by the way, he doesn't tell us to ask him to like pray that demons would leave. He tells us to command demons to leave in the power of his spirit. And what's awesome is they have to listen and obey his authority. That's what you see all throughout the scriptures. And, and usually there's some kind of physical reaction when the demon leaves, like there's a healing that takes place. In this case, this man's migraine that I was ministering to, like his migraine just went away. Jesus took it. Or the person might fall down and weep, or they might just have a sense of peace. And that brings us to the last movement that you see in Jesus' pattern, which is you always minister to the person's need. You see this in the desert after Jesus has been attacked by Satan, and then he drives Satan out. Angels come and minister to Jesus. And you see Jesus doing this in the Gospels. After he delivers this guy with the legion of demons, the next thing you read is that this guy is dressed 
He's not naked anymore, and he's sitting there having a conversation with Jesus. Why is that significant? Why does, why does Mark put that in the gospel? Because this man's been exiled. He's had no friends, no intimacy, no relationships, no human interaction for some time. And Jesus hears, like helps him get dressed and, and hangs out with him, like spends time with him. And then he says, go and tell everyone that the Lord has had mercy on you. I just love that. So Jesus kind of restores this guy. In Mark chapter 9, after Jesus delivers this boy from seizures, everybody thinks this kid is dead. He's laying on the ground. And then Mark says that you read, quote, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up on his feet, and he stood him up. This is a kid that has struggled to walk like, and, and like be stable on two feet his whole life because he's had these violent seizures that have thrown him to the ground. And what does Jesus do after he casts out this demon? He stands this kid up, puts him on the ground, and restores him on two feet. He ministers to this kid's need. And you always see Jesus doing this, this pattern of ministering to the need, whether it's a need for relationship, acceptance, appropriate touch, the need for someone to repent of something connected to the demonic influence, the need to forgive someone, or simply the need to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. So that's the pattern. Discern the footprints of demonic activity. Command evil spirits to come out of the shadows and reveal their names. Command them to leave and never return, and you minister to the person's need. And Jesus has called us to follow him in this pattern, to embody and practice the ministry of deliverance, that we may see more of his kingdom come and his will be done in northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven. And if you're in this room today, some of you in this room, as you listen to this, you may sense right now there could be demonic activity in your life. And if, if that's you, like I, A, I want you to like pay attention to that. I don't want you to obsess about that, but also don't want you to dismiss that. I don't want the skeptical part of you to come in and just like rationalize that. But if, you, if you're in this room and you sense that, that there could be like a dark presence or some sort of spiritual bondage in your life, like we would, we would love the opportunity after the service in just a moment to pray for you and minister to you. I know I can't be there, but I know Jared is here and Luke is here and they would love to pray for you and, and minister to you in this moment. And I, I just, I just want to leave you with with this word of encouragement. Um, while Satan is strong, Jesus is stronger. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how any other way to say it, but just, it's just that simple. Like while Satan is strong, Jesus is stronger. In 1 John 3, 8, it's one of, one of the like, most powerful verses in the scripture, I think, says this. The reason the Son of God appeared. Okay, you want to know why Jesus came? Why did he come? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And what we celebrate each week in communion is that through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, the power of sin, the power of Satan and his demons has been broken in our lives. Paul says in Colossians 1, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus. That's who we are. And in that place, there's, there's divine protection. And so what God is inviting us this morning is to step into that and walk in that power and in that peace. And so as the band comes forward, I just want to invite you to kind of just bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we take communion. We just remember that the, 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 
the bread represents the body of Christ broken. The juice represents his blood. I just want you to rejoice in the promise that you are free in Christ from any kind of demonic power or stronghold. You don't have to sit in bondage anymore. The blood of Christ has covered you and given you a brand new identity, and you have authority over any kind of demonic presence in your life. And if you're in this room and, and, and like you don't believe that, you, you wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And our prayer for you this morning is that you would wake up to the reality that everything you're putting your hope in is actually working against you, and you've been deceived. And our prayer is that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of your heart and you would see Jesus this morning inviting you to step out of the darkness and step into the light and be healed and be made new. That's our prayer for you this morning. And if you want to talk more about that, I know Jared and Luke will be available after the service and would love to talk with you. Let's pray together. Father, I ask right now that um, in the name of Jesus, you would cause this word to sink down into our hearts and take root. I pray the gospel would become explosively alive in us in this moment. I pray for joy to well up, freedom, liberation from any kind of bondage to sin or to the evil one. I pray that you would set people free today, right now. Release them into eternal life. I pray against anything that would keep us as a church from flourishing from being resilient disciples, from experiencing the abundant life that you came to offer. And may we lock arms with you, Jesus, in the power of your spirit and walk in obedience to your scripture to see more darkness pushed back in our city, more freedom ushered in. I pray in Christ's name, amen.